Dear Father, we thank you uh, even for these more disturbing passages in the Old Testament. Uh, we know we have them in the New Testament as well, and we know that all of these things were given for our edification. Uh, primarily, we see that they were given here for Israel's edification, and it was a tool used by Israel to uh, alert themselves to their own wickedness that they had fallen into. Uh, we pray that we would be able to use this passage in the same way. As we look around in our culture today, we see many of the same uh, problems as uh, occurred in Sodom. Uh, so we, we don't want to ignore these passages. We want to learn what your Holy Spirit would have us learn from them this morning. Uh, so we pray for your guidance as we study this passage. Uh, we pray for your grace and your peace as we, uh, as we look at true evil uh, this morning. Uh, we pray that you would still encourage our hearts uh, as we look forward to the day where righteousness will reign, uh, where your justice uh, will rule the land. And we do praise you that that is our fervent hope and that that is our guarantee of the future. Uh, so we do uh, praise you as we look forward to the restoration and redemption of all things. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, before we jump into it, um, I did promise that I would not forget one announcement, and uh, I did indeed forget it. Uh, we had a missionary here on Wednesday, and he left a few free books. Uh, they are out on the table if they have not already been grabbed yet. Uh, this was Mark Musser, missionary to the former Soviet Union. He has one book on, uh, it's called Nazi Ecology. Um, it is a dense book. Uh, but it is very enlightening. And then there is a commentary on Hebrews, uh, which is a very good commentary. Um, so I'd encourage you, grab those before somebody else can. Uh, all right, with that, let's jump into this morning's sermon. We get to see these angelic characters that we have followed through chapter 18, now going into the land of Sodom. The main point for this morning's message, so you can have it at the forefront of your mind as we begin to look at these passages. This chapter is not about Israel, but it involves Israel for two reasons. First, to understand the righteousness of God's judgment and their own responsibility as a nation, it is expedient to understand what happened in Sodom. Remember why God chose to reveal this to Abraham was for his training. Second, to complete the story of Lot and to introduce Israel's perennial enemies from Lot's descendants. We're going to meet Moab and Ammon at the end of this chapter. We begin with the meeting between, between Lot and two of the messengers who had come to Abraham. We read in Genesis 19.1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Now here are these two angels. The text doesn't actually tell us that these are angels yet. These are celestial beings. They are not mere men. Uh, but the text tells us that these are messengers. The Hebrew word for messengers is malak or malakim. And this never tells us whether or not the messengers are celestial or human. We have to learn that through the context. The context here becomes clear, especially when we get to verses eight or verses 11 and verses 13, where we see first the supernatural things that they do and the supernatural purpose that they have in Sodom. Also, we see that these two angels or two messengers better are part of the group from the previous chapter. It doesn't just say any two messengers, but it says 
the two messengers. In fact, it says two of the messengers. This is what's called a partitive. That means we're making a part or a division in a group. The group was the three men that had come to Abraham in Hebron. Of these three men, two of them went to Sodom. So these are the two messengers, these two angelic beings who came to, so to Lot in Sodom. They were from the same group that had lunch with Abraham, the same group that left around uh, early evening to head down to Sodom. We also see that it's not a day later or two days later, but it is the evening. It would have said simply in evening if it had been any evening, but the use of this word the connects it with the same day. Now this is important because some people try to explain how these two messengers went to Sodom, which is 18 miles away, by foot and arrived the same day. This is a one-day journey. But some, arguing that these two messengers are not angelic beings, but men, say that it must have been a day later on that evening. But this is not possible in the text. It was the same exact day that Abraham had met with these angels, that these angels went to Sodom, traveling these some 18 miles by foot, but with angelic speed. They were able to arrive in Sodom that very night to bring the warning of destruction to Lot. In Genesis 19.11, we see how these beings, who are simply called men, or called messengers until now, we see some of their supernatural activity. And later, when we get to these passages in the text this morning, we'll see how only angels ever do this. It says, They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. And it's probably around this time that Lot realized that he's not simply entertaining men, but he's entertaining angels. Hebrews 13 tells us that on occasion we might entertain angels unaware. This is what happened to Lot. We see at the very beginning he may not have been fully aware of who his visitors were. As well in Genesis 19.13, we see their divine task. We are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord, the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Well, this is the meaning of messenger, somebody sent for the purpose or for a task uh, by a sender. But the task that they've been given is an angelic task, one that supersedes human ability and is given to them by God. Now, this is generally the region of where Sodom would have been. In fact, you see that green patch down there. This is in the Jordan Valley. This is called the Kikar of the Jordan or the Circle of the Jordan. This is the only green patch really left there until you get up way north towards the Sea of Galilee. But this is the region where Lot probably went to settle. This is the northern region that is slightly visible from Bethel and Ai, where they first looked over the ridge, and Lot decided which land he wanted. He saw this green area and he went down to it. And it's in this northern part of the Dead Sea that the land of Sodom probably was. We get a little better view of it there. Now we note that Lot made a slow and steady progression towards Sodom. He first went to this well-watered green area and then he continued towards Sodom. He moved his tents towards the edge of Sodom and then finally we find him living in Sodom. He's making his way slowly south 
but it's still at the northern end of the Dead Sea, now beneath the Dead Sea. When we arrive in Sodom, we see that Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, if we're just reading this without any understanding of, uh, of the time period and the culture, we might think he's just some hooligan sitting outside the city with no specific purpose or, uh, or job in the city. But what we find in scripture is that this is a very prestigious place for somebody to be sitting. This is the place where elders sit. This is the place where judges sit. Uh, this is the gatekeeper to the city, the one who decides who comes in and who stays out, the one who protects the people, who decides whether someone can sojourn in their land or not. Now, this is a picture of some ruins of a city on the, that, I guess this will be your left. We can see the gate. It's not just a simple gate, but this is what's called a Solomonic gate. It was built in the time of Solomon, so a bit later uh, than what we're looking at. But you see there are three little porticos on each side. These are areas uh, in, in Solomon's day were used particularly for warfare to keep men out of the city. To protect it, they would put men with bows and arrows or lances in these porticos so that if anyone tries to come into the city, they can stop them dead on arrival, literally. This is uh, also one of those ruins from the land of Hatzor, which is the northernmost military point uh, for Israel. But looking at these gates, we see that they're pretty elaborate. There are places for people to camp out, places for people to sit, lie in wait, places for people to operate as judges or elders um, or even... Uh, even as tradesmen. This is in the southernmost region of Israel, actually the southernmost uh, region of the northern part of Israel, south of Judah though, south in Judah. This is Tel Gezer. And Tel Gezer is interesting because we have two different kinds of gates. We have both a Canaanite gate that would represent what Lot was sitting in. And we also have a Solomonic gate. So we have one gate that was primarily for trade and another gate that was primarily for a time of military and warfare. The one we're looking at here is Solomon's gate. This was a Canaanite gate. And this is what that one would look like. You've got a gate that's more of a structure that has rooms and, uh, and trading stations in that building. In here, this is again on the uh, left, no, on the right side for this. Uh, these little porticos, people would sit in and judge. If you had an issue that was taking place in the city, you wouldn't take it to the city square. You would take it to the gate of the city. The idea being the person judged will be excommunicated from the city. Just a small step across the gate and he's not allowed back in. As soon as the judgment is handed down, the, uh, the penalty takes place. Another one of these gates we find in uh, Beersheba, which we'll start to look at in chapter 20. This is actually the site of Beersheba, uh, where Abraham went to uh, trade his wife to Abimelech. That'll be chapter 20. Um, this is the gate to the city. And right inside of it, we see these little porticos where people could have sat and conducted trade or conducted uh, court sessions, small court sessions. We've seen this already too. This is in the northern region in the city of Dan. Not the Israelite Dan, but the Canaanite Dan. This is actually called the Gate of Abraham. 
because Abraham would have passed through this city on his way to conquer the ten kings who had uh, attacked the Jordan Valley in Genesis chapter 14. We can see how elaborate this gate is as well. It stands prominently in that city, and again inside are rooms that they can conduct their business. You see the four porticos instead of the six in the Canaanite uh, city. As soon as you enter through those gates, you enter right into what's called the city square. You don't necessarily have to go to the other side of the city or follow down a long road to get there. The city square is right inside the gate. This is the main part of the city. Everything else as you move further in could be residential housing. But the gate is the main place for a city. The gate is the most important place where a man in the city can be positioned, where he can be stationed. In fact, if you look uh, down at the bottom part where you see these people coming in towards the gate, it might be kind of small. As you look directly across from that gate that they would enter, you see a little platform. This platform is where the judge would sit. This platform is where the person who is judging whether someone can come into the city or not, whether they are safe or not, whether they want them mingling with their people or not. This is where that person sits. This is where Lot was seated that night. Lot was seated in one of the most prestigious places in the entire city. He moved from being just a herdsman with Abraham in the hill country of Israel in a land that's not their own, to being a tent farmer down in the land of the Jordan, edging ever closer to Sodom, and then living up against Sodom with his tent, and then living in Sodom with a house. And now when we finally meet him in our last episode where we see Lot, he has become a man of the city. He has become respected by this godless city. We'll see that that's, that does not last long as soon as he tries to go against their worldview. They'll kick him out. They'll say, you're not actually one of us. But we see from his position that he is accepted as one of them. Here are some examples, especially from Genesis, of how the gate to a city was used. Here when... Abraham goes to buy a plot of land to bury his wife, Sarah. He takes it to the city gate to be adjudicated. So Ephron's field, which was in Mechpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of the border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Het before all who went in at the gate of his city. This was decided at the city gate that Abraham was allowed to have a piece of their city, allowed to have a piece of their land, allowed to dwell among them in one way or another. In Genesis 34, when the sons of Jacob move back towards Shechem, it says, So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us, therefore let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters and marriage and give our daughters to them. It was the men at the gate who judged that these people were, uh, that they were willing to let these people into their city to trade with them, to own land with them, and even to intermarry with them. This uh, means of using the front gate continues in Israel in Deuteronomy 21 as they are establishing their cities. Moses writes, if any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, 
And when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. This is where the elders of the city resided. Now we've already seen Lot makes his progression down. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley or the circle, the Kikar of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot sojourned eastward. Thus they separated from each other, Lot and Abraham. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. And in Genesis 14, 12, with the war of the ten kings, says also Lot, uh, they also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. And so, seeing him now at the gate of Sodom, we see that he is sitting in the place of the elders and where trade was made. He possesses a permanent residence within the city. His daughters are betrothed to Sodomites. We'll see that in a few uh, verses. And he addresses the Sodomites as brothers or friends. This is a man who has thoroughly introduced himself to a worldly society, separating himself from Abraham, who had separated himself to God. Abra or Lot has uh, planted his roots firmly in the world and the world system. However, as Second Peter tells us, Lot was a righteous man. Lot was a saved believer. Lot had put his trust in the one true God, and this had imparted righteousness onto his, uh, onto his account, even though he was not acting in the righteousness that belonged to him. In fact, we don't even need to go to the New Testament to see that Lot was a righteous man because what was Abraham's argument to God? Will you wipe away the righteous with the wicked? God refused to wipe away Lot together with the wicked. In fact, we even see the angels drag him out of the city because his own lack of sanctification is not allowing him the obedience to go. God would not destroy this righteous man along with the city. He gave him every opportunity and finally did rescue him from the city. Lot was a righteous man. He belonged to God, but he acted as if he belonged to the world. We can note a comparison here between Lot and Noah. Noah did not act like a man of the world. He acted in the same righteousness that belonged to him by divine uh, gift. Noah was able to save his entire family. Noah, a righteous man who lived in that righteousness, was able to bring his entire family with him on the boat, saving them physically in this world. They did not lose their lives. As we move through this chapter, and as I'm sure you've read many times before, Lot is not so successful. He is not able to save his sons-in-law. He is not able even to save his wife. His daughters are dragged out of the city with him, but we get the sense also they hardly wanted to go. They lament and mourn their departure from Sodom after they leave. This is the difference not between believers and unbelievers, but carnal believers and spiritual believers. Believers who are living the way that God has given them the ability to live and believers who refuse those gifts of God's righteousness practically. But we see that when Lot sees these men, he still does 
act in a measure of righteousness beyond what the other city dwellers do. This man is not totally gone, but he is living on the edge. While all the other men in the city are going to want to abuse these men, Lot does want to extend to them a measure of hospitality. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. This is uh, good due deference to these men. He is not patronizing them. He is not abusing them. He is glad to see them, but we see that he is worried and hesitant as he moves forward. The meeting with Abraham wasn't that different, but the situation is different. And so the, uh, the activity is different as well. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the earth. This is a very similar scenario. One difference may be noted that while Abraham runs to meet them, Lot simply rises to meet them. But they both bow themselves down. And Lot's bow actually is a little bit more emphatic here than Abraham's. While Abraham simply bows himself down to the earth, the, uh, the Hebrew in Genesis 19 shows us that Lot had his face planted firmly to the ground. Lot was prostrated before these men. And we will see him in a minute beg them to come into his house and be rescued from the danger of the city. In verse 2, we read, And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. In other words, we'll pass just through the gate and we will remain there at that place. Now he calls them my lords. This is the Hebrew word Adonai. And it's spelled or pointed a little differently than we saw back in chapter 18, where he's speaking to my Lord, singular. This is speaking to Yahweh, the God who had come down and visited him. We see also that after he had called him Yahweh or Adonai, uh, he uses singular pronouns to speak of him. You singular. If now I have found my favor in you singular, your sight, please do not pass your servant by singular. Please let singular a little water be brought and wash your feet. And then he speaks to all three men and all three of you rest yourselves under the tree. Abraham addresses Adonai the one true God. But the word Adona just simply means Lord. When it's pluralized there, we see that it means either two plural lords or the one true God. And context has to determine which. Here we see that context determines that the one true God is not part of this group of two men. He is not one of the messengers who has come down to Sodom, but it is the other two men, these other two uh, angels. It says, now behold, behold my lords, Adonai, please turn, plural, aside to your, plural, servant's house, etc., etc. In all of these instances, he is speaking to both of these men as lords. He tells them to spend the night in his house, but they say, no, we will spend the night in the square. Now, this may be it actually may be both, but there are two options for why they want to spend the night in the square. 
One is because they've been sent for the purpose of assessing Sodom, of assessing their sinfulness. Another is simply that they were giving Lot, uh, they were acting humbly towards Lot, not accepting at first his invite. The second seems to be the most popular among commentators, uh, but I do prefer the first. They had a purpose in Sodom, and that was to see the unrighteousness of the city. On the other side of this, it could be to test the righteousness of Lot. Lot insists here on their protection. He insists on their uh, coming to his house to avoid the dangers of it. It also shows Lot that he's living in a city that is too dangerous for men to go and sleep in the square. Now for us, this sounds ludicrous or insane. I wouldn't want to go to 6th Avenue and sleep on the side of the street. But given the climate in this region and given the culture of this day, this was not unheard of. This was not unnatural. In fact, when we get into a passage we're going to look at in Judges, we see that this is one option that a traveling Levite has, is simply to sleep in the city square. This is not uncustomary in that time. But it would show a lack of hospitality among the townspeople, and not allowing them to spend the night in the square shows that Lot understands how dangerous this place he's living in is. In Genesis 18.20, remember, the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Lot was not comfortable with them choosing the city square, and so he urged them strongly. This is a double emphatic statement. He was not about to let them stay the night in the city square. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. Now, we want to remember why God is giving this full revelation through Moses to the children of Israel and why he had done this event in the first place and allowed Abraham knowledge of it. God had chosen Abraham for a specific purpose, to be a nation before him, to act as a priestly nation in the world, one that is a mediator between God and the world, to bring about the oracles of God, to bring about the Messiah of God, to live in his theocracy through which he will establish the Messiah as king and ruler. But they are a, at this point, uh, not a glorified people. They are simply human, just as we are. And they have to learn to live within the boundaries of God's law while not possessing God's regenerated spirit in man. And so, having chosen Abraham for this purpose, he gives him this revelation of what happened, the inside track on Sodom, so that he could train the children of Israel not to go down this path of rejecting God and abusing God's righteousness. Remember, he said, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, the author of Judges is well aware of this purpose. The author of Judges, who wrote a few hundred years after Moses, records the awful decline of Israel after they entered into the land, but failed to rid the land of all of the Canaanite practices. 
They began to adopt some of these practices. Things get so bad that the author of Judges chooses to record an event very similar to this one, but which even goes beyond the wickedness of the Sodomites. And in that, we'll see two things. We'll see that God has a special purpose for Israel and is not going to wipe them out, but is going to restore them. Now, he just about wipes out all of the children of Benjamin. He leaves just enough of a remnant that they're able to rebuild. But we see that God had shown them the wickedness of Sodom. And when they did that in the land, God judged them in the land. Martin Luther calls this one of the most disturbing passages in all of scripture. So fair warning, and it's probably by divine design that no children are in the uh, sanctuary this morning here. But Judges is an awful terrible look at mankind. And here we get towards the end of Judges, and the wickedness only increased and increased and increased. Now we see a Levite here who had taken a concubine, and his concubine had escaped from him. She went back to her father's house, and so he traveled from Ephraim down to Judah to retrieve his concubine. And his Father-in-law swindled and dealt with him poorly for about five days before the Levite finally says, no, I'm done with this. I'm taking my concubine and we're leaving. They passed by the cities of the Jebusites, which later became Jerusalem. They said, no, we're not going to stay there with foreigners. We're going to go to our own people. And so they head up towards Ramah and stay in the city of Gibeah. And this was a big mistake. This was a city of Benjamites, and the Benjamites had increased to the level of wickedness that the Sodomites had in the land before the Israelites came back in. So we read in Judges 19.15, they, that being the party of this Levite, the Levite, his concubine, and his servants, they turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. There wasn't even a righteous lot in this city. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to them, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. And I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem in Judah. But I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants. There is no lack in anything. The old man said, Peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave the donkey fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Now, all of these details here in Judges 19 are for the purpose of correlating this story with what happened in Sodom. Almost all the details line up perfectly for that very purpose. Now, we'll parallel these two stories as we go along. Um, the, uh, the Benjamites will act a lot worse than the Sodomites, and even the host will act a lot worse than Lot. And Lot doesn't do a great job here, but um, he does try. When Lot brings them into his house, he prepared a feast for them. He baked unleavened bread, and they ate. 
Now, the word here for feast is the same word for drink, but this is commonly how they would speak of a feast. You came to a feast to have drink and food, uh, not just food. Um, so the idea here might be that he did give them something to drink and he did give them food. But uniquely as well, this, this is the term also used for a feast. And so while Lot brings them in and says he's giving them a feast, and then he brings them unleavened bread, the same thing that the Egypt or the uh, children of Israel left, ate the night before their departure from Egypt because it could be made quickly, because it was a food that did not need a lot of preparation, did not need a lot of cleanup. This is a eat it and go kind of meal. This is a granola bar kind of meal. Genesis 18.5, remember Abraham, who said, I will bring you a piece of bread. Speaking very humbly here. But then what does he end up bringing them? Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour. Remember, this could probably feed our entire congregation three times over. Knead it and bake bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf. He gave it to his servant and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree and they ate. So while Abraham says, I'll bring you a piece of bread, and he brings them a magnificent feast, far more than they could eat. Lot says, I'll bring you a feast, and he brings them unleavened bread. This is the, uh, the gaslighting of Sodom. Things don't measure up to reality in Sodom. Even Lot's standard of accordance with truth has been affected. Lot speaking proudly and boastfully only provides humble pittance. Abraham speaking humbly provides a feast. Now there's no indication here that Lot is poor. He's living in the city. He's in an exalted position. He has his own house. He's able to betroth his daughters to men of Sodom. He has the means to provide for these men, but he doesn't. Part of it is because of the danger of the city and he wants them out as fast as possible. He's not even able to provide the kind of feast that these men would deserve, being messengers from the one true God, because of the danger of the city that he's living in. Now here we get to see the, the revelation of the deterioration of the sodomites' minds as they lived apart from God in this wickedness says, before they lay down, that's these angels, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Now, there's a bit of a debate whether they laid down to eat or laid down to sleep. Uh, apparently, this does indicate to sleep. It's the same word used also for laying down for sexual purposes. And I think this foreshadows what's about to happen. The men of the city the city of Sodom, both young and old and all people from every quarter. This uses multiple merisms. These are figures of speech which go from one end to the other and saying essentially everything in between. It wasn't just young boys and old men that came to do this, but the middle-aged men were left out of it. It says, no, everybody in between. From all corners, all quarters of this city. It wasn't just the people around Lot's house. But the, as the word spread that these visitors had come in, the whole city 
came out. Now, whether or not this is every single individual is not clear. We don't see any indication that women came with them. It also appears that Lot's sons-in-law or his betrothed sons-in-law did not participate in this. But that does not diminish the fact that this entire city had turned itself over to wickedness. While we have the explicit wickedness of all of these men, which is a great number of men of many ages, surrounded this house so that they couldn't even get out, we also have the implicit wickedness of everyone who let them do this, of everyone in the city who either turned a blind, blind eye or approved of what they were doing. This is a wicked, wicked city. Remember in Genesis 6.11, before God destroyed the earth, how corrupt had the earth become? Entirely corrupt. Now this is another form of speech that God uses here rather than a merism, meaning from the least to the greatest. He uses what's called a synecdoche, which is using one part to speak of a greater part. So he speaks of the earth here and says the earth was corrupt, the earth was filled with violence. This doesn't mean the dirt. This means everything on the earth. God looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt. And here we get the definition of that synecdoche. All the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Every living thing had become so corrupt that God had to destroy it. He had to wipe it out. And we see the same thing in Sodom. He has gone down to assess the wickedness to see if it truly does measure up to the judgment that he's about to bring on it. And we see clearly here that it does. It is so corrupt, God has no choice but to wipe it from the face of the earth. Remember also part of the explicit wickedness that had happened in the times before Noah's flood. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. This was not just simple sexual deviance, but a crossing between the angelic and human boundary. These men in Sodom probably did not understand the extensive wickedness they were about to, uh, to commit. Their wickedness blinded them from this, but it also gave them hearty affirmation to the wickedness that they were about to do. This is something that God had to intervene. He had to stop this from occurring. There were mighty men who were of old, these men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This explains to us Sodom. We recognize that Sodom has decreased to the level of pre-flood world. These men came and they surrounded the house completely. In Judges 19.22, the same thing happens. While they were celebrating, this Levite and the man from Ephraim, who was also dwelling in Gibeah, while they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. Genesis 19.5, they called to Lot and said to him, who are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Now there's also debate about what this word means because in the Hebrew it's the word to know. Most often about 915 times in the Old Testament when this word ada is used, 
It simply means to know as in to have knowledge of. But there are about 50 times where this is used for intimate knowledge of a person, meaning carnal knowledge, sexual knowledge. And this does fit the bill for that case. See here in Genesis 4.1, says, Now the man had relations with or knew his wife Eve, and the result of which she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Now just knowing as in being introduced to somebody does not have this result, but to know someone sexually does. This knowledge is an intimate knowledge between the man and his wife. In Judges 19.22, they sought to have relations with this man, to know him. In Genesis 19.8, the response of Lot is an offer of his two daughters, so that they would know them, because these two daughters had not yet known any man. It would be quite strange if Lot, if these men came up and said, how dare you not let us be friends with these guys? We want to meet them. They came into the city, and you're keeping them from our company. We just want to introduce ourselves and get to know them. And Lot says, no, don't take them, but get to know my daughters instead. The daughters already live in the city. They know who they are. And what would be the purpose of saying these, these two daughters, they've never seen a man in their lives before. They've never met a man. Like, meet them. But even stranger would it be to say, please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you would like. Clearly, this is in the context of sexual knowledge, in a very well-attested translation for this word. These men of Sodom sought explicitly to rape these angels. But notice also how God prefigures this judgment. We see on one hand God's righteousness and on the other hand man's wickedness. Remember when God said that he has chosen Abraham. This is the same exact word. I have known Abraham. I have known him intimately. But this is a righteous knowledge. This is a righteous meeting of a man. But also in Genesis 18:19 he uses this word to speak of the wickedness of Sodom. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will yada, I will know. God has knowledge of these situations. While these men are seeking the deep things of Satan, the things that are not to be known, the things that are not to be known intimately or experienced, these men are seeking to do that. And they've exchanged the truth of God for wickedness, and this is the result of that. What happens on the spiritual side of things when you throw off truth is that these spiritual things lead to physical reactions. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. 
Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You see, this is no new sin. This is no novelty to the wickedness of man. In fact, God says this is the result of separating yourself from his truth. When you separate yourself from him and his word, when you refuse to agree with him about what truth is and you create a truth of your own, your truth will naturally be distorted from that which is actually true. And so when the truth of how man and women were created to complement one another is thrown off, naturally, wickedness will burn to increase wickedness and increase wickedness and increase wickedness. We see that just as they gave over God and called him worthless, God gave them over and made them worthless. He gave them over to these degrading passions and the result of which men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now in the Old Testament, we see that before the law, God is judging these actions and he judges it to death. He judges it to the point where he wipes this city off the face of the earth, executing each individual in the city because of their wickedness. And under the law of Moses, we see that this does become a crime punishable by death. That in this theocracy of Israel, which God is establishing, they have a responsibility to act on God's behalf and execute the individuals who are introducing this corruption into their land. Now, we are not under the law of Moses. We do not have the right or the responsibility to execute these men. This is not a death penalty offense here, but it is wicked and it is evil. And it has to be separated from what is true and from what is right. And a nation that embraces this instead of embracing truth and righteousness will be judged by God, just as Sodom was judged by God. This is the peak of depravity. And if we look around in our culture, we can see that recently we've even gone beyond this. We've even gone beyond simple homosexuality and sodomy, doing something that a culture has not done to our knowledge in history, which is not even throwing off the gender roles, but throwing off gender altogether. And saying that when God created a man, it's not even a man. When God created a woman, it's not even a woman. We live in an age of grace, and we see God's graciousness when we look at the wickedness and the evilness of our land. And although we might cry out and say, God, where's the judgment? We know judgment is coming. We know, first of all, here in Romans 127, that God says each one is being judged in himself. They're receiving within themselves the due penalty of their actions. It is no mistake that the homosexual this homosexual activity leads to all sorts of disease. But the consequences are not just physical. The consequences are first spiritual. He hands them over to a depraved mind. Their personalities are changed by this. How many homosexuals do you know that are just completely unstable? Unfortunately, it's true. They're not even able to live because they've separated themselves from truth. Suicidal ideation skyrockets in homosexual communities and especially in transgender communities. The further you get away from truth, the further you get away from life, 
the less you can bear to live it. This is the judgment that we see today, these individuals. And we ought to pray for them. Our goal is their salvation. Our goal is to use this time of grace that God has given us to extend grace to them, to show them what truth is, to show them who Christ is, what he purchased for them, so that we, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, might be able to say, such were some of you, but now you have been washed clean. This was one of those sins that Paul dealt with in the Corinthian church. And he did not rain down judgment on them. He recognized that God is already judging them. And that ultimate final judgment is coming down from God. But he has a ministry of reconciliation. A ministry of reaching them with the gospel. Because the gospel does change lives. And Jesus died for each one of these individuals as well. Jesus died to purchase for them eternal life and they must receive it by no other means than faith alone. As they continue trusting in what God has provided for them in his son, they can say, we have been washed clean. There is hope and there is redemption available for these individuals. And so while we ought to look at our culture and recognize the awful wickedness and to stand against this wickedness in the culture, as we stand against this wickedness in the individual, we seek the salvation of the individual. Just as we would seek the salvation of our nation as a whole by ridding this wickedness from the land. This is going to be the result in Israel as well. When we see this sort of wickedness rise up, uh, it's used as a sign to Israel. And one of the results of this is going to be the uh, ministry of Samuel who brings about the anointing of the kings of Israel, the king after God's own heart, David. So even as we look at the wickedness of, of judges, we recognize that salvation is just around the corner with the king of God's choosing. The king of God's choosing is Jesus Christ. He is bringing righteousness, and we're waiting for his judgment. Lot does try to deter the wickedness of these men. He says, but Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. Again, there's two options for why he did this. One is to protect those individuals who are inside from any harm, putting himself between them. I do prefer this understanding of the text, but another one is to shield those from within the house from the deal he's about to try to crack with these men. He said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. He's identifying himself with these citizens. He is meeting them as friends outside his house. But then notice his tacit judgment of them. Do not act wickedly. He is measuring their actions up against a moral standard, a moral standard which is not their own. They do not like this, naturally. But where did he get this moral standard? You see, Lot, though he had separated himself in much of his activity from the one true God, he still knew the one true God. He knew that this activity that they were doing was wicked and evil. He knew that sodomy was not the righteousness of God. He knew that it was contrary and contradictory to it. 
Similarly, in Judges 19, verse 23, Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, my brothers, my friends, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Notice here, though, this man doesn't say wickedness, but folly. A simple mistake. Don't make this mistake, guys. So he says, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Notice this man has brought the Levite into his house to protect him. And while he offers his own virgin daughter, he offers the Levite's concubine. He says, please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. Now, Lot avoids any statement of violent sexual activity towards his daughters. He simply says, do to them whatever you'd wish, which allows for violent activity towards them. But this man goes beyond that and says, rape them and do whatever you would wish to them. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. You see, Lot has a poorly calibrated moral compass. So he understands that there is right and wrong. He has some basic understanding of what those right and wrong parameters are. He knows that he has to offer hospitality. He knows that this is a good thing to do. And he knows that sexual relations between men and men is wrong. I doubt at this point that he fully understands that those who he's hosting in his house are angels. But this is wrong as well. But what he does not understand is the sanctity of marriage. He does not protect his two virgin daughters. He doesn't understand the sanctity of family. Now, as a man in this culture, he does have a responsibility to find husbands for his daughters. This is part of his duty. And he's done that. He's found two sodomite suitors, two men to whom these daughters are betrothed. And in that day, a betrothal is the same thing as a marriage. To override that betrothal, there needs to be a formal divorce. Though these daughters are betrothed to be married to these sodomites, he offers them to these other men instead. His moral compass is poorly calibrated because it's not calibrated to God's perfect standard of righteousness. But here, in the city with these Benjamites, this old man from Ephraim, his moral compass is even more poorly calibrated. Lot is going to try a compromise here, just like the man in Gibeah. He says, now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Judges 19.25, but the men would not listen to him. He offered his own wife and the concubine of the Levite. They didn't want that. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. He doesn't bring his own wife out to there. He seizes the concubine and throws her out of the house. They raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. Now in our story, 
the breaking of dawn is the destruction of Sodom and the salvation of Lot. Here, the breaking of dawn, we don't see salvation. In fact, we only see a further stepping down into wickedness. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, then behold, his concubine was laying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up and let us go. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey and the man rose and went to his home. Now the lack of answer, most people interpret as she was dead. They raped her and killed her or left her for dead. And she died at the threshold of the door that she had entered into for safety. And this Levite takes his concubine, who he'd gone down to Bethlehem to rescue. And when he entered his own house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Remember, Israel was given this message of Sodom to teach them about God's righteousness and the judgment that comes on a nation that does not abide by God's righteousness. This is a sign to the 12 tribes of Israel that they have stooped to the depravity of Sodom and then gone beyond it. And God's judgment will come, but they have the opportunity under God's grace to turn around. And so it says, all who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. This is the same thing we ought to do. When we see the wickedness and the evil in our land, we ought to consider it. We don't turn a blind eye to it. We take counsel, and where do we take counsel? From the word of the Lord, because that is our standard of truth. That is our standard of righteousness. And then what do we do? We speak up with this truth. We say something, not only for their safety, not only for our own, but for those in our house as well. We have a responsibility because we've been given truth to spread that truth, to share that truth, to rescue people from destruction. God has given us that ministry of reconciliation. We have a time of grace here to get as many on the boat as we possibly can as God comes first for salvation and then for judgment. Now, when Lot offered his two daughters, these two men or these men outside of his house said, stand aside, move away. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, a sojourner. This is the same word used for Abraham when he sojourned in the land of Egypt. He's a temporary resident. He's not one of us. To sojourn in a land is to live temporarily among people who are not your own blood. And so what they're recognizing here is he is not one of us. He is not a sodomite. He's not from Gomorrah. He's not from Admar, Zeboim, or even Zoar. He's a foreigner. And his mind, his calibrated morality, does not represent ours either. He's not even integrated into our wickedness. Now we look at him and we say, he's pretty close. But they look at him and say, not enough. Even an ounce of moral righteousness. They say, get out. We're done with you. They say, you are 
he is already acting like a judge. Well, remember where we met him in Acts 9, or in Genesis 19.1. He was sitting in the seat of a judge. You don't take that seat yourself. The city places you there. They had put him over them as a judge because they thought his worldview matched theirs. They probably thought his worldview matched theirs because his activity reflected that. He had not protested to this point of the wickedness and the evilness in the land. Lot did not speak up because he had not took counsel, because he had not considered the righteousness of God. But here, when faced with destruction, he does. And when he does speak up, it wasn't easy. In fact, here he is derided by his city, the people he called friends and brothers. Soon we're going to see derision even from his family, refusing to believe him. We put this up against Abraham's ability to uh, debate with God in the previous chapter. Because Abraham measured God up to God's own standard. And he was able to do this because Abraham knew God's standard. Lot did not. And he becomes a poor, uh, a poor defender of truth because of it. The result, these men decide we will treat you worse than them. So now it's not just these two men who have come in, but they're going to take Lot and treat him more poorly than these two men. While they sought to rape these two men, now they are seeking Lot as well. And so they pressed hard against Lot and they came near to breaking the door. But the men, that's the two men who were staying in Lot's house for the purpose of being saved by Lot. Now they reach out their hands and save Lot. The men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Here we have for the second time in Genesis, God's divine closing of a door for safety. Again, Moses is a very talented and creative writer. God uses his skill set very precisely so that we see once again salvation coming before judgment in a small scenario before we see the larger scenario. Lot is about to be killed by these individuals outside his own house to be raped and left for dead like the concubine in Gibeah. The angels reach out their hand and pull him into safety, rescuing him from physical destruction. In the morning, once again, they will rescue him from physical destruction by grabbing him and dragging him out of the house, dragging him out of the city. Now in Genesis 19, 11, our last verse this morning, they, the two angels, the messengers, struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. Every single one of them was struck blind. But this was not a blindness of not being able to see, but of not being able to see the truth of what was before them. This word for blindness is only used three times in the entire Old Testament. It is a very unique word for blindness. The only other time it's used twice in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. This is the war of the Arameans against Israel when Elisha goes up against them. And Elisha, who recognizes that the army of the Arameans 
far outnumbers the armies of Israel. So he prays, he said, answer me, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. This is the king of Israel. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of this king so that he could see reality as it truly was in the spiritual realm as well as in the physical. But the other side of his prayer, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people with blindness. I pray. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. These men had come seeking Elisha. And because God had struck them blind in this very unique and special way, they saw the man standing before them, but they did not see Elisha. So that Elisha was able to say, you guys are in the wrong place. This isn't where Elisha is. Follow me. I'll lead you. So the one that they sought led them away because God had deceived their sight. God made it so they could not see reality. And Elisha was able to bring them up into Samaria and leave them. This is what happened in Sodom. Not that these men suddenly had their vision vanish, but that their separation from truth and reality was made a physical reality to them as well. They had separated themselves from the truth of God. God separated their vision from seeing the truth. See, they weren't groping around at a door they simply couldn't see. They were trying to grab a door that wasn't there. And they couldn't see the door that was there to open it. This is a supernatural blindness, a dazzling or a dizzying, a covering over of the truth and replacing it with a falsehood. Now we're going to be three more weeks in Genesis 19. And uh, we'll probably be sick of seeing all this evil by the time we're done with it. Uh, and then Genesis 19. 20 isn't all that much better. Um, Abraham once again will try to sell his wife to uh, Abimelech. But soon we are going to see the promised seed born. And it's going to come through all of this wickedness and evilness. And it is that bright star on the horizon. It is that morning star of salvation awaiting at the end of all this wickedness. God is going to put away all of this evil and judge it with his righteousness, and then he will reign in righteousness over the whole world. We'll close with this reminder of the main point this morning. This chapter is not about Israel, but it involves Israel for two reasons. First, to understand the righteousness of God's judgment and their own responsibility as a nation, it is expedient to understand what happened in Sodom. Second, to complete the story of Lot and to introduce Israel's perennial enemies from Lot's descendants. That'll be verses 30 through 38 when we finally see that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for every word of your perfect revealed truth. Even these sections which dizzy us with the wickedness of man. We recognize that in this society, we can see all of the elements of Sodom's unrighteousness and even more. Though this might have been present in Sodom, uh, 
you didn't choose to reveal that to us, uh, but we see that our days are growing uh, particularly more and more dark and grim, and we knew, know that that means that we are leading towards judgment. So we do pray that you would uh, continue to extend to us the ministry of reconciliation, that you would fill us with the Spirit so that we can live righteously, and that we might extend the gospel of grace to all of those who we encounter in this world who are headed towards judgment. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We recognize even more what that means as we see these cities and nations that deserved your judgment in the Old Testament. We pray for the finishing of your uh, plan for history, for the bringing about of your King in Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.